Kia ora, I'm Sharon Brett-Kelly. Today on The Detail, two big announcements on roading and transport. It's bold, says Chris Hipkins, and it'll cost billions. The proposed new Auckland Harbour crossing will see five new tunnels being built. The Nats have released their $24 billion plan of attack on transport ahead of the election. The main focus is roads. Bigger, better roads, new tunnels and trains. Tens of billions of dollars worth. It comes with a price tag of between 35 and $45 billion. National's new transport policy has been priced up at $24 billion. But who will pay? As I've indicated, all options for how we fund this are still on the table. That's the next part of the process. Does that include public um, Like I've said, every option is still on the table at this point. Morning, Mr Luxon. $9.25 billion of private funding. Where will that come from? Well, look, uh, there's a lot of pension funds. There's a lot of sovereign wealth funds that want to invest in infrastructure for long-term investment returns. We've got to have a modern and reliable infrastructure and roading network. And the way that we can do that, or part of the way we can do that, is actually using private capital and, and alternative funding mechanisms. Today, we look at public-private partnerships. They're nothing new. They're often high risk. But who cares if you're going to get a brand new hospital or school or road? A Christchurch business leader says more public-private partnerships, or PPPs, for key projects in the quake-flattened city centre could make the council's share of the costs more palatable. And I'm pretty confident that done well, you'll see even in social infrastructure a better outcome for New Zealand and New Zealanders. It's like putting the uh, private sector fox in the public sector chicken coop because the state assets are simply going to be pillaged off by smart bankers. The report showed failings from the get-go, much of that because of the project structure, which was switched from a public-led project to a public-private partnership before construction began. Transmission Gully might not have been built were it not for a PPP. Well, that could it have been done on the balance sheet of the accounts of the government, whereas now it's 25 years to pay it off, right? The Herald's property editor, Anne Gibson, looks at the PPP pros and cons, the flops and successes, and the alternatives to funding these huge projects. First, though, RNZ's Ben Strang has documented the delays and cost blowouts on Wellington's transmission gully, a PPP critics love to hate. Almost any time a PPP is set up, lawyers have a field day and the goalposts shift as to when this project will be completed because things happen (laughs) and there's not much you can do about that. So what is a PPP? Typically you'll have a government, that would be a central government or a local government, which contracts out a project that they want built to the private sector. So you'll have a private company who will come in and build that infrastructure And in return, uh, they typically will operate that infrastructure for 20 to 30 years after it opens, which would allow them to then make money out of it. At the end of that, it will transfer ownership back to the local or central government, which commissioned the project in the first place. It sounds like a good arrangement because it seems like the private company involved takes on the risk. But that's not quite the case, is it? No, not always. If I take it back even further, you have you know various companies bidding in a tender process to, to be able to build the road. And so they're incentivised to basically go as cheap as they can with uh, the, the materials that they use on the road, the design of the road, all these sorts of things. The government then has to 
weigh the balance and figure out exactly what the best option is. But in the case of, say, Transmission Gully... The project was beset by delays and its budget blew out by more than $400 million. You have a company bid for it, you know, they say they're going to use these materials, this is the design. It might not be the best design that was available, but at the price point, that's what the government likes. So, for instance, there are parts of Transmission Gully that when they opened, it was already bumpy, the chip was already lifting on the road. This is literally the first day that it was open for a test drive for for me and other reporters when it opened. The road was already bumpy in patches. Within two weeks, they were already resealing parts of that road. If they had used more expensive materials, if they had used asphalt the whole way, the whole length of Transmission Gully, it would have been a far more high-quality road, but instead... Uh, where they could use cheaper materials, they did. Is it a case where, yes, I mean, it was incredibly controversial, but now you've got a lovely road to travel on? Yeah, it's an incredibly complicated process because of the PPP arrangement. So, yes, there's this amazing road. There's no doubt that any engineer looks at some of the things that have been built on Transmission Gully and marvels at it. The, one of the bridges on there is is incredible. It's built to withstand a 400-year earthquake, which is pretty vital in Wellington. Some of the work when they cut through the slopes at the top of uh, Mount Wainui are incredible. The size of them, uh, the way that they've concreted there, all you know, and that's over a, a fault line as well, major fault line. So they they've built this thing to last. That is a, a marvel, really. It's just all the stuff that goes on in the background. So we had a pandemic hit during the construction. We had the Kokoda earthquake hit during construction. And then work stops on Transmission Gully for a certain amount of time because the pandemic is it. Then the road builders are going back to the government and saying, well, we can't work. This is a, a force majeure event. Uh, you need to pay us extra money because you know we're facing these delays and we can't meet the timetables that you have set. All of these issues happen and lawyers make an absolute fortune from both sides as arguments continue. Could it have been done any other way? Waka Kotahi could have built it itself. That would have meant a massive upfront cost from the government. So if this cost you know, over a billion dollars to build, that's something that Waka Kotahi can pay off, you know, say, 50 million a year over 20, 25 years. That's essentially the arrangement that they have. If they were to do it themselves, then they're going to have contractors and they're going to have to pay that up front over five years. We know that according to the Infrastructure Council in New Zealand, there's a hole of about $210 billion, which is a mind-blowing amount. You heard it, a $210 billion bill to fix our infrastructure deficit. That's the catch-up, not future works. So they say that over the next 30 years, we need to spend about $31 billion a year on infrastructure in New Zealand in order just to catch up to what's needed. Now, that's about 10% of our GDP, so it's a huge amount. And that's why private money is needed. This is how we get big infrastructure delivered in New Zealand. And we know, you know, we want light rail, right? We want a second harbour crossing and Wellingtonians need to be able to get in and out quickly and, you know, that traffic to flow freely. So we want these infrastructure assets. The point about them is how politicians decide we're going to pay for them. If we get a, a National Act coalition, it's very likely that we're going to get, like, PPPs on speed, 
Okay, so should we just yeah, take it questions. back a bit? Yeah. Because the reason I got in touch with you, Anne, about PPPs is that you did a very interesting um, story about how a New Zealand company which had contracts to maintain a number of schools and prisons, a PPP contract, then sold it to a British company. Tell me about that. So that's um, Morrison & Co. selling to International Public Partnership in Britain, and they bought um, the right to manage and run uh, Paramaramu Prison, various schools and the student accommodation at AUT. Um, So that British entity will now take over running aspects like cleaning, maintenance, building management, contracting to the government to provide all those services. But of course, with the opportunity as well to enter further PPPs to provide new infrastructure for New Zealand and very likely to be in the same segments in which they're operating because they've got all the relationships, right? Okay, this is their move into New Zealand. And this deal is worth something like, I don't know, 200 million New Zealand dollars. So it just shows what big business PPPs are. Yes, I mean, they are internationally and they're very successful in terms of they deliver infrastructure and they enable an economy to build things that are really important to them. You know, in this case, the, the schools, which include Hobsonville Point, and and then to, to run those and to run those successfully, but, um, you know, with long-term contracts. And the point about why they would do this sort of thing is it gives um, the buyer like a platform and entree into New Zealand, and they hadn't been here before. Um, and the buyer wants to do more PPPs in New Zealand. They said that. And the the benefits to New Zealand are sort of the economic spin-off that comes from that, getting new assets and also hopefully having all the services of very important parts to our economy, schools, prisons, um, you know, student accommodation, being run really well. What about the big ones like City Rail Link? They have a different sort of model, but I don't, they, they call it a link alliance. Yes. And the City Rail Link and also the Waterview Tunnel was had the water Waterview Alliance, where that brought in private players. But how how is that different to a PPP? How are so those the alliances are different to PPPs in terms of funding, basically, and also responsibility. So with a public-private partnership, we get someone running the asset, a motorway, for example, north of Auckland, um, Puhoi to Walkworth, that will be run for 25 years by that public-private partnership. But when you've got something like, say, the Waterview Tunnel, which you and I were in a few years ago for the opening... Um, um, that was done under a different format. That was done um, as an alliance. And also, of course, the City Rail Link is being done as an alliance. Now, that is a very interesting alliance, pretty much dominated by the French, I noticed when I went to the signing of it in about 2018 in the CPO. So that's Vinci um, Downer, which is uh, Australian. Uh, Soltashi Bashi, which is um, the French ones, WSP, AECOM and Tonkin and Taylor. So a really powerful force of firms coming together to build the City Rail Link, 5.5 billion, really big job, but not a public-private partnership at all, done in a completely different way. How is it different? Well, it's different because basically those contractors, they call them the link,
Link Alliance, and um, they get paid on a progressive basis. Now, I would imagine that's pretty much quarterly. And say if you build um, Puhoi to a Walkworth motorway, you only get paid when the concession period starts. So once everything's been built, once the motorway is up and running successfully, then you begin to get your quarterly payments. But what you get uh, under that arrangement is an interest payment because you've basically put all the money up front. So what that arrangement has done is design, fund, build, construct and run. So even though the government will collect the toll, the actual um, long-term quarter-of-a-century management is under a PPP. So that's quite different to where... So the Link Alliance says... um, uh, <laughs> goodbye. <laughs> oh, I see. So the payments, these these quarterly payments begin in an alliance case. They begin as soon as the work begins. Yes. Uh, so the government has to take on a lot of debt, uh, debt to fund to, it. To fund it. Yeah, yeah. And, and weirdly enough, the assets in both cases, be they a motorway tunnel or a road north of Auckland, are still owned by Waka Kotahi, still owned by the transport agency, right? But first of all, you put your money up front as a government or you go, ah, we'll delay it over 25 years and we'll gradually pay that off. It's kind of like going to the furniture shop and putting something on higher purchase, right? So that is the difference between them. So tell me about the different types of contracts that are involved in these big projects. So you've got a basic construction contract, you've got a design and build contract, um, fixed price lump sum, quite often these ones are. You've got the alliance that we talked about and then the public-private partnerships. And some people who've got specialised skills in these areas, like, say, Mark Bins, who ran Fletcher Construction for quite a few years, a very talented, um, a real expert in the area. He said to me that he doesn't like PPPs. He says that um, they all, all these different types of contracts have different functions, but he thinks the risk is very high when it comes to public-private partnerships. And he thinks an alliance is, a, um, you know, a, a better form. And and I wonder what we'll get when you know when when the contracts are struck for Auckland Light Rail and for the second harbour crossing. So I guess it depends to some extent on who's in power at the time, which model they choose, whether it's an alliance model or a public-private partnership. And it depends how how much uh, the government has decided to put into this, whether it puts a lot of money up front or whether it does it over the longer 25-, 30-year time frame. Whichever way we go... In the end, we pay for it. Don't we pay we? for it in the end, but the difference with the PPP is you're paying the interest over that long period of time. So it's sort of like saying, I've got enough money for the house, I'll just go and buy that house now. Or it's like saying, I'll get a mortgage and I'll pay that off. And so my principal and interest will be astronomically large compared to if I had the lump sum to pay for it and, you know, when it's all built, that's the end, it's all debt-free, it's clear to go. Ben Strang says the argument against the PPP formula is that it gives the private partner the upper hand. Absolutely. And I think there's a few reasons for that. But in in this particular case, in Transmission Gully, they know that the government wants this road opened as quickly as possible. And so they have a lot of leverage in all of these negotiations around you know, how this is going to play out, what the the due date is going to be. So a pandemic arrives, they have stopped, you know, they're not allowed to work on it because of lockdowns. 
they have a, a massive bargaining chip there that they can use when they go back to Wakakotai and say, well, hey, you know, we were off for three months, so you're going to have to push the, the, the deadline. With the contract, there are fines in place if they don't meet deadlines to open this road. And so that is essentially what the arguments are over. Well, you know, if you hadn't locked the country down, we might have been able to finish this project sooner. That may not have actually been the case because Waka Kotahi don't have a, uh, you know, they don't have the best overview of what's happening in the build of that road. They sort of wait and and at certain moments they check things off a checklist to see that the road is as it should be. But huge bargaining chip for the builders of the road. In, in this case, from what I was told by people involved in Treasury and that sort of thing, the argument from the road builders was, you know, this is a force majeure event, something that we could not have foreseen, and so it comes at a significant cost to us. You're going to have to cough up more money. My understanding is that people at Treasury said, well, actually, there is insurance out there that you could have found that involves pandemics, but it's just highly likely that they saw that insurance and thought, oh, we're never going to need that. When was mm-hmm. the last pandemic? Didn't get it. Pandemic hits, and they're in trouble. Now, technically, Waka Kotahi, funding the project, could have gone back to the PPP and said, look, we've got a signed arrangement. You've just got to deal with it. Any extra cost falls on you, and we have the fee that we've agreed to pay. In this instance, though, uh, they caved to those demands. They paid the extra money because they really want that road to be open at a certain time. And yes, there were five or so, five or six delays in the end to when it would actually open, but eventually it was, and, and that's what taxpayers wanted. They wanted this road open, so they had to pay extra. What a soft hand he showed there, just able to guide it in, as he said, and an excellent find by Golden. That's the Breakers playing a home game at Spark Arena in Auckland. It's also the venue for some of the biggest international music acts that come to New Zealand. Ben says it's a good example of a PPP. But still, its opening in 2007 was delayed by construction issues. It's being run by private owners before it's eventually handed over to Auckland Council. From my research into them doing these stories, I think examples of really good PPPs are stadiums. So, for instance, Spark Arena, that has worked really well because... The council doesn't necessarily, in a situation like that, have to pay off the the fee for constructing the stadium. This private venture builds the stadium, they get to operate the stadium, and they get to benefit from the concerts coming in and sports games and all of that sort of stuff. They take in the money, and so they are incentivized in that situation to create the best stadium they possibly can, to get as many events as they possibly can. They could have an advertising arm, anything like that to just try to incentivise the use of this stadium to make as much money out of it as they possibly can. And when they then turn that over to the council or or to central government, they have a world-class stadium. That's the idea there. And then they can benefit from hosting those concerts, from hosting those sporting events. In that sort of context, I think it works really well. With roads, it's a lot harder because you've got this payment arrangement with with the government that you're dealing with or you have a toll road, and if you're the government, do you really want toll roads when you're trying to incentivise safer travel? That's kind of the thing that the government has to weigh up when they're dealing with something like this. It's quite surprising, actually, where PPPs are used, isn't it? I mean, national national is much more 
into them than Labour and has used them for schools and prisons for a start. And in fact, I think there are several schools that are, are private-public partnerships still. And that's probably the argument of, of charter schools and that sort of thing is that you could you know, have these private operators building schools and operating them and, and benefiting from students paying fees and, and all that sort of stuff. It, it could be good for the education system. Um, heck, it may not. There's some data, some some studies from the Treasury saying where these work and how these might work, uh, but they also give a lot of warnings, and, and the main warning is lawyers often get involved in these projects. There's often delays in when these projects actually open. There's often cost blowouts, and that is just because the power shifts to this private entity. You really want this thing open. They know it, and they can just usually eke out a little bit more cash to to you know have the project completed. So there's pros and cons. Weighing those up, thankfully, is not my job. Uh, that's something mm. governments have to think about. But it's it's they can be beneficial. It's just if you're ready to to take those extra costs on. The other thing I was just thinking about with Transmission Gully. Um, and it relates as well to if they were to use a PPP for these tunnels under the Auckland Harbour. The difficulty with Transmission Gully is that the route that they were taking was so difficult and so treacherous in places, it took such engineering, uh, dealing with a fault line, dealing with a you know 100-metre high bridge. This is very, very difficult stuff. And one thing that the companies building it knew is that no one would want to take that over from them. Once they'd started the project, it's not like they could just hand it over to another company and they could finish it all. You, you don't want to finish somebody else's work. Mm. So with something like five tunnels going under Auckland, that's another factor that you've got to think about is once you've selected this this business or, or this consortium, if things go wrong, is anybody really going to want to take over? And, and, and when those negotiations end up happening, which inevitably will with the PPP, that's just one of the bargaining chips that they have, is that no one wants to take over this project. We know all about it. We've taken on all the risks. We know what the risks are. It would take a huge delay if you were to bring somebody else in to try to complete this project. That just adds to the difficulty and the intricacy of, of what these projects are and, and is something that needs to be considered when deciding whether you go with a PPP or some other arrangement. That's it for today. I'm Sharon Brett Kelly. The detail is supported by the Public Interest Journalism Fund. Today's episode was engineered by Phil Benge. Our producers are Sarah Robson and Bonnie Harrison. And thanks to Ben Strang and Anne Gibson. Kakite anō.